So I want to start out by saying this. Uh, when I was at the debate, was that last Wednesday, I guess? Or was what? There was a <laughs> me, the Protestant, an Islamic imam, um, a Jewish rabbi, and a Catholic priest. And the moderator who got to choose the questions to give uh, was an atheist professor at East Central. And so it was, it was an interesting time. I enjoyed it, actually. Um, they actually, the, the university contacted me this last week and said, hey, we want to do that again. Would you be willing to come up here on a yearly basis? And I'm like, sure. But in all of that, that atheist man, whom I had classes with a gazillion years ago, said something that has just resonated inside of, inside of me. The Lord has not let it go. He said this. He said, Christianity in Oklahoma is a mile wide, but it's only an inch deep. And he's right. He's right. Christianity, at least in Oklahoma, I'd say this probably holds true for most of the Western world, obviously. Not just in Oklahoma. It's no different in Kansas or Texas or wherever. It's a mile wide and an inch deep. And I want to kind of delve into that. I'm going to call this sermon a call to reprioritize. A call to reprioritize. And here's why. Every, every year at this time of year, uh, this is kind of what the Lord impresses on me. I guess as, as Christmas starts to, to come more and more to the forefront, I am more and more reminded of how much I should be prioritizing Christ and his word and the ways that I'm willing not to. And it is, it is a time every year where the Lord gets my attention and says, you need to prune this away and you need to cut back this. I need to be the central focus of your life. And I always think Christ is the central focus of my life. And yet, if you look at how I spend my time, you'll see what really is the central focus of my life, won't you? The truth is, I can tell what your priorities are by looking at what you spend your time on. That hurts, doesn't it? Let me, let me throw something out there for you to chew on. If the only appreciable difference between us and the folks that go to the Word of Faith Church down the street is the building that we go into on Sunday morning, then I would submit to you that our version of Christianity is pretty nominal. Just as nominal as theirs. If it doesn't transfer into the way my life goes Monday through Saturday... If it does not transfer into how my time is spent Monday through Saturday, if my time is spent the same way that everybody else's time is spent, I am being pressed into the world's mold. So I want to get into that. All right, let's start. Let's start here. The parable of the sower. Uh, by the way, the parable of the sower can be found in all the synoptic gospels: uh, Matthew 13, uh, Mark 4, Luke 8. Let's go to Matthew, though. I I don't know why of those of the four Gospels I end up spending more time in John and Matthew. I don't know why. Mark was the first Gospel to ever be uh, written, and it was actually Peter's Gospel that Mark was writing down as Peter told it to him. And then Mark's, a lot of the stuff of, of Peter's recollections... Uh, Matthew would take, oh yeah, I remember that, and then he would add some stuff in. Oh, and, and by the way, this stuff happened there too, and oh yeah, about that. And so what you'll find with the Gospels is you'll find Mark is pretty condensed. Mark is a fast-paced Gospel, and immediately it came to pass. You find that all over Mark. 
Matthew is more of like an expanded version of that. So is Luke. Kind of written from different perspectives. One's more toward um, those who would be familiar with the Jewish um, scriptures. Luke is basically written to people who would be familiar with the Jewish scriptures. That's why throughout the entirety of Luke you see, and this fulfilled this, right? And this fulfilled, Jesus did this, and that fulfilled this scripture. And Jesus did that, and that fulfilled this scripture. Well, that's because Luke was writing to a background audience that would have been very familiar with the Jewish scriptures. Matthew is written in such a manner that you can take the gospel of Matthew and you can give it to a Gentile believer and they can still, someone that's never seen the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament, they can still um, get the gospel out of it. So anyway, neither here nor there, but I end up spending a lot of time in Matthew. So let's go to Matthew 13. Christianity is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I agree. And I think this is why. Let's start at verse 1. The same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him so that he got into the boat and sat. And the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell in the wayside, and the birds came and devoured it. And some fell on stony places where they didn't have much earth, and they immediately sprung up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun came up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, Because it's been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Well, there's something to chew on if you're you're not reformed. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he who has, and he'll have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken away. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you'll hear, and you'll not understand. And seeing you'll see, but not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. By the way, I'd say that that little passage describes a lot of the Christian students that I've had over the years. It's okay to spend three hours a night watching ESPN and binging on every statistic of every sports team that they love. But ask a kid who Athanasius was. Well, I don't know. Why should I, who, who cares? It doesn't even matter. Really? How about the Council of Nicaea? Who cares? Why does that matter? These are Christian kids. Right? These are not the pagan kids. These are the kids that are grown up in the Christian home that I'm talking about. How'd that happen? Verse 16 says this, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it. They desired to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And here's the explanation, verse 18. Therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom 
and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. That's he who's received seed by the wayside. He who received the seed on stony places, that is, he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. They're full of zeal, but they've got no determination. They've got no diligence. They can't stick with it. I would say that uh, pretty much describes our society. We are not stick-with-it people. If you doubt that, take a look at marriages. What's the statistic? Almost 60% now. It's more than 55% of quote-unquote Christians who get married will end a divorce. The vast majority of those less than three years. And I've seen, I think, five cases of that in the last two months. Young couples that I know. Why? Ah, it's just too tough. Golly. You know, we argue. You're kidding. Oh, man, it's tough. I mean, do you know what it's like to live with somebody else? I mean, when they, like, are mad and they just kind of bicker at you? Yes. I mean, we we just don't see things the same. Mm -hmm. So what? Stick to it. This is going to sound crazy, but if you stick to it, your marriage will get better and better. That's crazy, but it is true. But you have to stick to it. Okay, that's... I'm not getting into that. He who receives the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. And I want you to, if you're a a Bible marker, which I am, you want to circle 22 because that's where we're going. We're going to drill down on that today. That is the magnifying, that's where the magnifying glass is going to come to rest. 23 says this, he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. What is the difference between 22 and 23? What is the difference between the one who's who's choked out and the one who puts forth a, a fruit? How is it that someone can hear the word and see the word and they can go to church and they can do all the same things as somebody else, it seems, and yet not have the same kind of fruit. I would submit this to you. I think the vast majority of the time, when our lives start to produce fruit, here's what happens. We start producing fruit, and we think we've got to do more and produce more fruit. And that's a, that's, it's a good motivation. It comes from a, a good heart's posture. But that's not how God's kingdom works. More fruit is not produced by more busyness. More fruit is produced by more time with Christ. You don't get more fruitful by being more busy. What you'll do is, believe it or not, you'll find yourself running pillar to post, hither to, you know, hither to on, and not having as much fruit. Why? Where did the, where'd the fruit go? Well, you got your eyes on the wrong thing, and it's easy to do. You got your eyes on the fruit. You start spending time with Christ and he starts changing you. And that transformation starts producing fruit in the people around you and the relationships that you have, the the conversations that you have. And you get really excited about that. And you think, well, what I need to do then is have more conversations and be involved with more people and be involved with more, you know, ministry opportunities and be involved with, you know, everything under the sun. 
And yet it seems like you start running everywhere, but the fruit doesn't come. And the reason is, you've fallen back into verse 22. Look, when we read that verse, it's very easy for us to read that and go, oh, look at that. It's the deceitfulness of riches. I know I shouldn't be deceived by riches. No, that's not the only part of the verse. The first and by far most important part of that verse says this. The thorns is he who receives the words and the cares of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. The cares of this world choke out the fruitfulness of the gospel in your life. How does that happen? Well, let me tell you this. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You got an NIV. Trash it. No, don't, don't actually trash it. Is that what the NIV say? It's your spiritual act of worship? That's not the same. It is your reasonable service. It just makes sense. If Christ has suffered and died for you, it only makes sense that we would live for him, right? It's reasonable that our service would be this way. What is our reasonable service? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. I like how the Phillips Bible says that it says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. How is it that the world can squeeze us into its mold? Let me tell you something, by the way. That does not change as you get older. It's not that you, you get born again and then the world stops trying to squeeze you into its mold, right? No, the world will continually press on you, trying to push you into its mold. The world, the culture around you wants to make you like everybody else, squeeze you into this pattern. How will it do that? It'll do that by dictating what you spend your time doing. How does the world press you into its mold, getting you to spend your time just like the rest of the culture does? What you do with your time dictates what you become. Listen, your time is your life. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but it is. That's the one thing that God has given you. You don't even know how much he has given you. But you know he's given you some. You will actually trade your time for other commodities. I know that sounds kind of strange to put it in those terms, but it is true. You'll trade your time with a person to build a relationship. You'll trade your time at your uh, work for a paycheck, right? You'll trade your time studying for an education. You'll trade your time in a classroom to get a degree. Your time is your life. By the way, you can't save time. No such thing. I mean, we say that all the time, right? That's kind of modern parlance, right? Well, I saved a lot of time by doing X, Y, Z. But you really didn't save any time. You're constantly and continually investing your time. And what you invest your time in will dictate who you become, where you go, your path in life, how you spend your time is what will dictate that. You want to know how to become a nominal Christian? Go to church on Sunday and spend the rest of your time like everybody else does. How is it that we can have a kid graduate from high school and they can do calculus, but they can't tell you who Athanasius is? And by the way, I'm not talking about a kid that's, you know, raised by drughead parents. 
How is it we can have Christian parents raise a Christian kid, by the time he gets out of high school, he can do calculus and doesn't know who Athanasius is? He can do calculus, but he can't tell you how the Bible has been influential in Christian history. He can't tell you anything about great Christian writings. Why? Well, because we just get sucked into the mold of the world. And we allow our kids to spend their time like everybody else is. And we spend our time as parents like everybody else does. Right? Oh, man, I was gonna, we were going to start having devotionals. And you know how that goes. But, man, you know, it's two hours of football practice. And then they've got all that time in the weight room. You know, my daughter, she's playing softball and basketball. I just didn't have the time. That's our excuse. My mom, whom she can really rile me up. She knows, probably like every, every mom. Every mom knows the buttons to push, right? But my mom was really very fond of telling me two things about time. One was, you have the same 24 hours everybody else does. That's true. I will say this. My mom, ooh, man. She, there's a lot of things she is, but lazy's not one of them. She is one of the most efficient, productive human beings I've ever been around in my life. And that is because she's very, very good at being efficient with her time. She's very, very good at being absolutely judicious. She will cut out anything that she does not view as necessary. She does not waste time. She's not a dawdler. Here's the other thing. I tell her all the time, oh, Mom, you know, when I was in high school, yeah, I want to do this, I want to do that, I just don't have time. Too busy. She'd say this, you always have time for the things that are important to you. Oh, I really don't. Oh, yes, you do. You show what's important to you by how you use your time. You can tell me that Christ is the most important thing in your life, but if you're spending 20 hours a week playing baseball and Jesus is getting the leftover 20 minutes a day, then there's something different between what you're saying and what you're living. And your Christianity will start to become choked. Oh, man, I I knew we should have done that. I just don't have time. Imagine what it would look like. By the way, is it not true, parents? Is there pressure to push you into the same mold as everybody else, you darn right there is. My son is two years old. He's two. Do you know what I have been asked over and over and over? By Christian parents, by the way. Well, that boy's a big boy. He's going to be a football player, isn't he? I don't know and I don't care. I, I really did have somebody get incensed. I said that and one of my friends who himself is pretty big in football. says, you don't care. You played football. Yes, I did. You played college football. Yes, I did. And you don't care if your son ever plays football. Correct. That's pretty hypocritical, don't you think? (laughs) No. Uh, I've got injuries all over my body from it. And it sure didn't do a whole lot for my health. So, no, I don't care. Do you know what I've never had asked from a Christian parent? Oh, man, that boy, he's two. So are you going to teach him how how to read Greek? You can read the New Testament. Hey, when are you going to start teaching him theology? Hey, are you going to go over some Christian history with him? Do you know what that tells me? We are pushed into the mold of the world. And we think because we're Reformed, we're not. Oh, bless God, that's what everybody else is. But us, us Reformed folks, we're not pressed into the mold because we're, we're Calvinists. That is hogwash. We get pressed into the mold the same way that other Christians get pressed into the mold. And that is by being pushed into using our time the same way everybody else does. 
And I'm here to challenge you. And here's why I'm challenging you, because God's been kicking me about it. How are you using your time? I got to thinking about this. It seems like yesterday my daughter was born. Now she's four. And I thought, wait. I, I blinked and she's turned four. She'll be eight. She'll be 12. She'll be 16. What will I have taught her that can last her her entire life? You know what I've really been, really, really been, let's get into my personal life. What I've really been uh, convicted over is, you know, we've got, we, we spend a lot of time on the road. I mean, my folks live up in western Kansas, right? My brother and sister are over in Davis. We live 30 miles out of town. We're in that Yukon constantly. I've got a DVD player in there. Man, is it handy, right? Keeps the kids from going crazy. We have a selection at our house. It looks like Disney has their own red box at my place, all right? You know what I'm talking about? Like, I can sing every Disney song, right? Now, I, by the way, when we're, when we're driving, we've got the old Yukon, right? So you, it's not this whole, like, they have their own stereo system and we have ours. It's not that way. When you turn the DVD on, you can hear it, but you can't see it, right, because it's behind you. So there are a lot of Disney movies I have not seen, but I've heard every one of them 10 or 12 or 15 times, right? I can sing the Frozen songs with the best of them, baby. And you know what I started thinking about? Why? On Sundays, we make a, we make a difference. You can only watch, we have some, like, Superbook, and we have some, you know, little movies about the life of Christ and the, the great stories out of the Bible, right? And Daniel and the lion's den and, you know, David and Goliath, all that good stuff. Why is that only a Sunday thing? If the TV's on for two or three hours a day, and granted, usually it's just background noise, but if it is, why isn't it something about Christ? Well, because that's what everybody watches. Well, that's what the grandparents get on. That's what the, you know, right? That's our excuses. We have a million excuses, and you know what they kind of boil down to? Well, that's what everybody else does. It must be okay. It's not okay. It's not. It's not okay for us to allow ourselves to just be pressed into the world's mold because we want to be like everybody else. Hey, I want to fit in with the other parents at the softball game. I want to fit in with the other parents on the sideline of the football game. Trust me, I do too. But you know what? Maybe Jesus is more important than that. What, what would it look like? We, have, we were, Justin and I were discussing this the other day. 30 years ago, you did not have practices on Sunday. Uh, for anything. You did not have practices on Wednesday for anything. Why? Because those were days for church. You know what started happening? Coaches schedule practices. And if you're not at practice, you're not going to play. And you know what the Christian parents did? Well, I don't want you not to play. They caved. How many practices do you think would go on on Sunday or Wednesday if every person whose child is over there at Stratford said, we're not going to go on Sunday or Wednesday? It would stop overnight. But it's just a whole lot easier to just be pressed into the mold. It's a whole lot easier for me to make excuses. So that's what we do. Me too. Well, everybody else does it. Must be all right. Your time's your life. Careful how you use it. That's all you've got. God's Word promises promises 
to enrich you, not enrich you, say, monetarily, but enrich your soul if you diligently utilize your time. That's why I think that's part of why Word of Faith is like so seductive, you know. I don't have to be diligent in anything, right? Hey, I don't have to be diligent, like work hard, just name it and claim it and it's going to come to me, baby, right? That's not what God's Word says. What does God's Word tell us about our time? Psalm 90 says, teach us to number our days so that we can get a heart of wisdom. Colossians 4 says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Ephesians 5.16 says, to redeem the time because the days are evil. Proverbs 13, the soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. It's the soul of the diligent who will be made rich. What are we told over and over and over? Your time has got to be guarded carefully. And what do we do instead? We use our time like everyone else does. When I was in college, I think I'd been a Christian for like all of a year, you know. And I just, I, I can remember having this, basically I was praying and I'm like, God, I just don't have time. To, I just wish I had more time to read your word. I need to learn I need to learn the scriptures, and I just don't have time. And I really felt impressed to start keeping track of what I spent my time on. So for a week, I basically kept track of what I was doing with my time. You know what I found out? I had plenty of time. Spending two or three hours a day watching SportsCenter. And by the way, SportsCenter's on a loop, dude. I mean, you know, if you've watched it more than 30 minutes, you're seeing the same thing over again. I'm watching it, you know, two or three times. So I got because I've got to get everything memorized. So when I go talk to my buddies, I know all the stats, man. You know what I'm saying? Got to be in that guy. Got to be that guy. I'm really worried about where my social status is going to be, right? An hour here, an hour there. Using using the uh, the TV is basically a, a time killer. Is what I was doing. And then I had times where I should have been studying for class, but instead I'm reading like the Muscle Magazine, right? I didn't need to read the muscle magazine. I mean, you know, I was on a scholarship there. I had to lift. I had to work out. That was part of the deal, right? So there's no reason for me to read the muscle magazine because I got news for you. The workout I'm doing is set in stone. <laughs> it's period, right? And I get as much food as I can eat. Well, why was I wasting my time with that? Well, it's just interesting to me. You know what I found out by the end of that week? I had plenty of time. I was just investing my time in the wrong stuff. I was investing my time in pursuits that were basically worldly rather than centered around God's word, right? Centered around being a disciple. Why was I not growing? Well, because I had time for everything else. If you parse out your time like the rest of the culture, I promise you'll become like the rest of the culture. How does the culture push you into its mold? That's how, right? had a buddy last night. He texts me. I mean, I'm, I'm studying. He texts me. He's like, hey, K-State might get it done. And I'm like, oh, yeah, K-State's playing. Right? Are you watching this game? It's awesome. I'm like, I- I'm not. No. I'm not watching the game. I would love to be watching the game. I like K-State. But God's been pushing me on my time. And I realize that's one that can go. Be judicious at cutting away things that are keeping you out of the, the Word of God. Be judicious at cutting them away. I mean, be ruthless. Right? There are a lot of things that you can do with your time that aren't bad per se. But you're not going to become more like Christ by doing that. You know, it's like we look at the great, um, the great men of faith in the past and we go, man, 
they were they were just these monsters of the faith, and I could never be like them. They were just so so holy and so great and so knowledgeable. How do you think they got there? How do you think Charles Spurgeon became Charles Spurgeon? It was not by doing what everybody else was doing. All right? The truth of the matter is, the more you're like the culture, the more comfortable you will be. Because you'll fit in with everybody. But the other truth is, that is not what will make you someone that has an impact on those around them for Christ. You're going to have to be different. The reason that Jesus was so great was because he was different. The reason that the Apostle Paul was so great was because he was different. The reason that Spurgeon was so great was because he was different. The reason that John Bunyan was so great was because he was different. And that meant they spent their time doing things that other people were not willing to do. How did I learn apologetics? I spent a lot of time reading apologetics when my pals are watching Sports Center. That's how. Right? You don't save time, you invest it. And the way you spend the time, your time will determine who you become. I want to be great for the kingdom of God? Then it's going to take time. It's going to take time in God's word. It's going to take time studying. That is dil- diligent study. The Bible says study is wearisome to the flesh. Can I tell you something? That is very true. It is wearisome to the flesh. Pouring over a couple of books for a couple of hours? It is wearisome. You start just... You know, you're yawning. You're like, oh, I'd just rather go outside and like run. Let's just go lift. I just, I just need to go. I need to get away from here. But yeah, it's tough. The question is not whether it's tough. The question is, is it worth it? Is it worth the sacrifice or not? Parents, how can you teach your children to have godly priorities? Model them. I have found something out in only four years of being a parent. Children and people in general, by the way, are very poor at doing what they're told. They are incredibly good at imitating what they see. So again, children are very poor at doing what they're told, but they're incredibly good at doing what they see. About a week ago, my son comes in. He's frustrated. He has a bit of a temper, and I'm pretty sure I know where he got it. His mom. No, not actually. And he's, he's playing with his toy, and he can't get it. And he throws it down. He goes, Dad, gum it. A two-year-old. My wife was standing right there when it happened, and so was I. She looked at me. I'm like, I know, I can't believe our son said that either. Where do you think he got that from? Do you think I ever sat him down and said, son, if you get really frustrated, you know, throw something, break something, and yell dead gummit? No. What happened? He was probably with me when I'm fixing fence or doing something, and I get frustrated. Dead gummit! And he sees that in me. And what does he do? He models it. I didn't have to tell him about it. He just modeled it. You know why we have a lot of kids that have poor priorities? Because they're great at modeling what they saw. I hear the same sob story a lot. You know me. I I love apologetics. And I hear the same sob story a lot. Oh, man, we raised our children to love the Lord, and they just walked away from it. And the vast majority of the time, the vast majority of the time, is because they didn't know anything about Christ. No, no, that's not what happened. I had him in class. He was not a great Christian young man. He went to church on Sunday with you because you made him. They didn't know the scriptures. He couldn't defend his faith. He didn't know anything about church history. No, he modeled the priorities that you gave him. And then when he modeled them really well, I mean, you know, hey, look, 
oh, church is really important unless, you know, unless it's deer season. Right? I mean, children pick that up. I mean, church is really important unless we've got a game. I mean, if we've got a game on Sunday, we've got to, you know, we've got to come to church in our baseball uniform and get out of there quickly. What do you think they're picking up? Well, they pick up your priority. Well, you know, church is important unless you've got something else going on. Which tells me what? It's not really that important. What message does that send to the kid? Well, Christ is not quite as important as baseball, or it's not quite as important as, you know, hunting, but we don't want to leave Jesus all the way off the scale, you know. We want to have him on there somewhere. It's Jesus, you know, around fifth, sixth, or seventh. Yet they pick that up because we model it. We don't sit down and tell them about it. They pick it up from us. <coughs> the Great Commission, which, by the way, also found in all the Synoptic Gospels, tells us to go in the world and make disciples of every nation. The Greek verb that's translated as make disciples, like in uh, Matthew 28, that's mephetuo, right? That's the Greek verb there. Sometimes it's translated as learn or go and teach. If you read the King James, right, go and teach all the world. It's a very poor translation. I want to read to you what... Um, the eminent Greek scholar Spiros Zodiades has to say about this term. That's maybe the first time I've ever pronounced his last name correctly, because I had to write it down. He says this in his uh, New Testament Greek text. He said, it's really not sufficient to translate this verb as learn, but rather as making a disciple. The word means not only to learn, but to also become attached to one's teacher, to become their follower in both doctrine and conduct, methetuo. We are teaching others by what they see us do. We are not just teaching others by what they hear us say. They see our manner of life. That's discipleship. And by the way, there's no better discipleship than the children that you're bringing up in your own home. Disciples don't just learn, they model. Here's my question to you. What are you modeling? Probably every one of you is somehow, in some way, discipling someone, right? Maybe some of you more than others, but you probably are discipling someone. You should be. If you're not, you should be. What are they picking up from you? Man, that's been convicting me this week. What are they picking up from me? What are they modeling from me? What are the priorities that they're seeing me lay out? God's told us to make disciples out of our children, and that means we have to model it for them. The same thing for your friends. The same thing for others you're witnessing to. They're not just listening to what you're saying to them as a witness. They are watching to see what your life is modeled. What can I pick up out of that life? What does it look like to be a Christian? If the only thing they see different in you as a, quote, Christian than them is that you go to church on Sunday, then what kind of model is that? What have they learned about Christianity? Oh, it's just something you tag on to the end of your life, right? It's an extra that you add on. Oh, you just live your life like normal. You know, be a nice guy, but live your life as normal. And then you just, you know, add this little plus Sunday or plus Wednesday night. Or do they see a life that is totally transformed? Do they see a life that's been turned upside down? Do they see a life that's been dumped out and, and spread at the feet of Christ? Lord, show me what you want me to do with my time. Lord, show me what you want me to do with my talents. Lord, show me what you want me to do with my money. Do they see a life that is changed? That's not like every other Christian that they've met. The truth of the story is probably nine out of ten Christians that you meet today in, in America will be pretty nominal. 
And half of those, statistically, will be word of faith, which is, I don't, I don't think is even actually Christian. I think it's cultish, but beside the point. I think it's a permutation of the gospel. Is it different for you, though? They should look at your life and go, you know what? I've met other Christians, but there's, there's something different about them. They're weird. I remember we got a haircut one time, and the lady says, I asked her, you know, I start up a conversation, just ask her if she knows the Lord. They know the Lord. Are you Christian? Well, yeah. I said, oh, okay. Well, great. Me too. She goes, well, now, now, I should tell you. Now, I'm not one of those weird Christians, though. Now, when somebody says that, you know you've got to drill down, right? You're like, I, I just have to know what that means, right? What do you mean by that? Well, we've got, we've got some neighbors. They're those weird kind of Christians. I said, well, what do you mean by weird kind of Christians? Oh, man. They like, they tithe. And sometimes they even do that fast and stuff. I said, really? <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I think they even like every night, like seriously every night, I think they have like this devotional time, like them and their kids and their whole family. It's really weird because they all have to be home. Like when they're, you know, over at our house playing, so they all have to be home at this certain time because they're, they're, they're having a devotional. That's weird Christianity. You know what that's called in, <laughs> for, I don't know, you know, 18 centuries of church history, that's called normal Christianity. Here in America, that's weird. You know why? Because those kind of Christians aren't the ones that have been pushed into the mold. They're weird. Well, you know, maybe it's time for me to be a little weird. Maybe it's time for you to be a little weird. Maybe it's time that our true first priority was Christ. Christ isn't an add-on. And listen, I, I'm, I, I mean this in love. It is easy for us to start right, to start true, and little by little, almost imperceptibly, over the years, we just start adding a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit here and a little bit there until we're so busy, our lives become choked. Maybe it's time, maybe this time, maybe it's time for us to start pruning some things back. Maybe it's time for us to start unchoking the word, that we can have fruit again. It's the time that you have with the Lord that determines the fruit. It's not how busy you are. It's not how many ministries you're involved in. It's not how many different activities at different churches and different people that you can become a part of. That's what we believe is influential because we see that. We see that modeled. But that's not true. Jesus was incredibly effective. <laughs> All right? And throughout the Gospels, what do you see over and over and over? Jesus withdrawing. Jesus, the God-man, withdrawing from the crowds. Why? To spend time in prayer? Spend time with his Father? Let me tell you something. That is going to be the source of your power. I promise you. That's the source of the power of your walk. That's the source of the power of your witness. It's the time that you've spent in, in the Word and with the Lord. And if you have done like me, if you have allowed these other things to kind of cut in, and cut little bits of pieces of time with the Lord out. Can I encourage you to try to start pruning that back? Recover your time. Keep the main thing, the main thing. God does not command me to make sure my two-year-old son one day becomes a football star. But, I mean, you know, hey, if he was a football star, it's not sin. But that's not God's command. But he does tell me that I'm supposed to raise him to be uh, sound in the faith. 
He does tell me I'm supposed to read. There are, there are things that he does tell me I'm supposed to inculcate, I'm supposed to teach to my child. I'm supposed to make sure they have this in them. And you know what's easy for us to do as Christians is to make those the second place things and everything else is the first place. Boy, I just wish I had time. Ah, we were gonna, I was going to teach my son. We were going to go through you know, church history, but I just didn't have time. I was going to make sure my daughter knew all this, this stuff, and I was, I was going to make sure she knew how to be a, a Titus 2, right? How to be good, chaste, how to love her husband, how to love her children, how to be a homemaker. You don't pick those up accidentally on the side of the road, right? You, they have to be intentionally instilled in our children. How oh, we were going to do that, I just didn't have time. Maybe I'm so serious about this because I'm looking at, at my own kids' lives and I know and they're going to be out of my house. I mean, four years has gone like that. What did I spend my time teaching them? To be like everybody else? I mean, why can they graduate and do calculus and not know anything about Christ or Scripture or theology or apologetics, or church history, or any of that? Well, they spend an hour a day, five days a week, plus homework. So let's say seven hours a week. Seven hours a week. Let's see, seven hours a week for uh, what, 40 weeks, 12 years. So over 3,500 hours. They have over 3,500 hours by the time they graduate in math. Do they have it in theology? Do they have it in church history? Do they have an apologetics? Why not? Well, I mean, I, I just don't have time. You don't have time? Don't an hour a day? No way. An hour a day? Who has that time? Got that time for math. Got that time for English. Got three times that amount of time for sports. The truth is, we have shown what we really value. And what we really value is Fitting in. What we really value is the other parents thinking I'm great. Or everybody else knowing that my son or my daughter is the superstar. Or they're the head of the class. Whatever, you know, pick, pick, pick your, you know, activity. They're the top debater. We've got all kinds of time for the extracurricular. But where did the time go for Christ? It's supposed to be the first thing, right? It's supposed to be our first I noticed something. I think this is incredible. Let me, let me give you an example of this, by the way. Every year, by the way, I have uh, written an email. I've sent it out at uh, the school that I'm at because, you know, every kid up, up at Stratford is a Christian, and, you know, their parents are too, if you ask them. And so I said, hey, do you know, you realize you can read your Bible for AR points? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, you can. Every single book in the Bible has AR points attached. You could literally have your child read through the scriptures for the AR points for their junior high. How many people have done it? I don't know. Not very many. I think Grace has read a few of them. I, I think she's the only one because I've asked. I actually made flyers two years. Called up the, the uh, principal over at the junior high and said, hey, can I bring you some of these things? I found out all this stuff. You can, you can read this stuff for AR points. Can I, oh, yeah, bring it down. Put it up in the, in the you know, Miss Thomas and the rest of the you know, little English teachers and the reading teachers' rooms. Why didn't anybody do it? 
Here's another one, Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's, let me tell you about Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress should be in every literature class, and it's not, of course, you know, even at our Christian Stratford school. I'm going to read Pilgrim's Progress. Why not? Written in 1678, it's a Christian allegory written by a Reformed Baptist pastor who was in prison because he was being persecuted by the government. And that's basically where it came from. It is regarded as the most significant work of religious literature ever penned in the English language. It is the greatest selling and most widely read Christian book of all time other than the Bible. It's been translated into more than 200 languages. It's never been out of print ever since 1678. For 300 years, it was the most widely read English, most widely read book in the English language. Not Christian book, any book. For more than 300 years. It is the first novel ever written in English. It's also considered the greatest novel ever written in English. Charles Spurgeon claimed to have read it more than a hundred times. J.I. Packer says that he reads it every year still, something he's done every year of his adult life. Of the top 100 novels ever written in the English language, The Guardian, that would be Britain's largest newspaper, their literature section, ranked it number one. It's so well read and known that it's referenced in countless other stories as well. Huckleberry Finn talks about reading Pilgrim's Progress in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Why does no one know it? Well, you know, I read Harry Potter. That's what's in the literature class, right? That's really good reading. Diary of a Wimpy Kid. I mean, that's what's in their literature class. Why? You know, they are points for Pilgrim's Progress, too. I would submit to you, we allow ourselves to be pressed into the mold because we do the same thing everybody else does. I want to make sure I read the same books. Got to watch the same TV shows. And around here, that usually means the same football games. Because I've got to be able to talk that talk when I get to work or when I get around my buddies. Right? I listen to the same music. You have hours upon hours upon hours, especially those of you who are here that are younger, in your formative years, junior high, high school, your college years. And those hours you'll never get back. How you spend your life, how you spend your time is how you spend your life. And how you spend your time will determine who you become and what you become. You want to, you want to become like Christ? Spend your time with Christ. Spend your time in his word. I'm sorry for being so, um, I don't know, I probably sound angry. I kind of am. I'm angry at myself. Um, the truth of the matter is, we're very poor at keeping the main thing the main thing. We have hearts that are prone to wander. It's true. We have hearts that are prone to do the things that sinful hearts want to do. Right? I don't know what that is for you. Maybe you're spending a gazillion hours on a video game, or maybe you're spending way too much time watching Sports Center. I don't know what it is that is encroaching on your time, but I do know this. I do know that every one of us probably has places where we could prune back and become more like Christ. We could spend time in his word. We could spend time learning about him. You know what makes school of ministry hard? It's a big time commitment, isn't it? It is a big time commitment. Three hours, three hours on a Sunday afternoon, that's a lot of time. Plus reading in between, it's a lot of time. Why do you do it? Because I want to learn more about the Lord. I'm not saying you need to do that. But I'm saying this. As this year is starting to move toward a close, 
you start seeing 2019 on the verge, on the horizon, let it be a time of reflection. What is it that I can cut out? What is it that's just superfluous? What is it that I'm spending time on that I don't need to spend time on? But I do need to spend more time with Christ. I do need to learn more about him in this manner. Maybe it's I need to learn some apologetics or I need to learn some Christian history. Or I need whatever it is. But I am just asking you this. Please, look at your time. Your time is your life. Spend it wisely. It's all you have. Let's pray. Father, please forgive me, Lord, for being a poor steward of the time you've given me. I have used my time for everything else. I've said with my lips, you're the most important thing to me, and I've proven with my time that I didn't mean it. I want you to be the most important thing in my life. Teach me to number my days. Show me how to model that to my children. That they might one day know you. That they might be serious about you. That they might make you known in all the earth. That you're the greatest thing in their life. That you're the, the greatest treasure in their life. And I know they'll only find that if they see me model it. Show me how to model it, please, God. I ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.